Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. My name is Taylor Bickle and last class session we talked about Spy Kids 3D and this time we're going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Mexico. This movie finishes up the trilogy where Robert Rodriguez started. This finishes his El Mariachi trilogy um, connected by Desperado. I want to use, I want to go back to El Mariachi and go back to his book about making El Mariachi called Rebel Without a Crew. And I want to use the following quote as kind of a thesis for this movie because I think it applies really well. He says, My first job in high school was at a photo lab, and I remember what my first boss, Mr. Rojas, told me one day after he saw me, after he saw some of my cartoons and photographs. He said that I had creative talent, but what I really needed to do if I wanted to be successful was to become technical. He said that just about anyone can become technical, but not everyone can be creative. And there are a lot of creative people who never get anywhere because they don't have technical skills. Part of what makes a person creative is his lack of emphasis on things technical. My boss said that if you are someone who is already creative and then you become technical, then you are unstoppable. I like that. Creative and technical. I've made some crazy movies, but as long as I have to rely on a crew for the technical demands of making a movie, I will always be at the mercy of having to spend a lot of money to make a feature film. But if I learn all there is to know about making a movie myself and do it all myself, I will be light years ahead of other people still trying to tackle the basics. Now, I think there's a lot of truth in that, and I think we're going to see that played out uh, as this as 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 this class session unfolds. So in the book, Robert Rodriguez interviews, uh, there's a interview called Robert Rodriguez, um, where he talks a lot about once upon a time in Mexico. And he said, he talks about how the idea of doing the third movie came from Quentin Tarantino when, when Tarantino was on set in Desperado, uh, cause he has a small role in that movie. And Quentin said, said, this is your dollars trilogy. And, Rodriguez was like, what? What are you talking about? He said, yeah, just like Sergio Leone did with Clint Eastwood, this could be your dollars trilogy. You you know, El Mariachi was Fistful of Dollars. Desperado, this movie's going to be um, for a few dollars more. And then you have to do a third movie that'll be like your big epic, like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And you have to call it Once Upon a Time in Mexico. And at the time, Robert was like, what are you, what are you, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> But that idea kind of sat on him for a little while. And so Desperado did okay at the box office, but it really kind of had this groundswell once it hit cable and home video and became more and more popular over the years to the point where finally Columbia kept asking him, look, you need to do another one of these movies. You need to do a set. You need to do another movie. And, and he said, well, I'll only do it if we can make it big and epic and, and only if we call it Once Upon a Time in Mexico. And to his surprise, they were like, yeah, absolutely. That's the only way we should do it. Okay. So there was an exec that, at, at Columbia that kept bugging him about it. And every year she'd, and she'd, she'd ask him, you know, when are we going to see the script for Once Upon a Time in Mexico? And he said, well, I'll have it for you on my birthday. And he just said that every year for years until finally, finally he'd done Spy Kids. And was feeling really worn out by that movie and really just kind of lay, just, just kind of ground down due to the, the process of making a movie like that, especially making a movie like that on film. And 
I mentioned this in the Spy Kids class session. We, we, we talked about this, how he did reshoots where he did, um, he put the film camera right next to the digital camera and then looked at the results later and was blown away by what the digital cameras could do. So, so he was really, really excited. That was really the only thing keeping him going at this point was he was just so excited to use these digital cameras on something, but he didn't have anything immediately in the works and the real thing that was putting pressure on him was there was an actor strike coming up. And so he knew if he was going to do something, it had to be soon and it had to be fast. Because once the actor strike hit, he wasn't going to be able to get anything done. But these digital cameras allowed him to do just that, allowed him to move fast, allowed him to get it done. He was talking to Antonio, Antonio Banderas. And, and at first, Antonio was like, well, no, I'm, I'm already doing another movie right before the strike but then when that got pushed back to after the strike all of a sudden Banderas was available and when that happened uh Rodriguez said I don't have a script yet but I'll get one for you soon and then he called up Columbia and said I'm gonna have the once upon a time Mexico script for you by like Wednesday or whatever he had like five days pumped out a 65 page script threw a 10 minute short into it that didn't fit anywhere and that was their only note that was the studio's only note you know that this subplot here about the banker, he's like, yeah, I'm going to cut that out anyway. Don't worry about it. You know, just to pump it up, just to have pages. And he he says, look, you know, we'll prep over the next month and then we'll go down to Mexico, shoot it in seven weeks, and then we'll come back and, and we'll have a movie in the can. And what he didn't realize until later was that Columbia never actually expected him to finish the movie. They expected him. They, they thought he was absolutely crazy. There was no way to get this movie shot in seven weeks. Uh, it was just too big a scale. It, it, there was just no way. And so they let him start because then they knew when the strike was over, they'd still have him on the hook to finish that movie. So at least they'd get it going. But he came back in seven weeks with a finished product, or at least at least with the footage. He, the problem was he was contractually obligated to do Spy Kids as soon as the strike was over and release it before doing anything else. So he had to go to Spy Kids 2 and then he was cutting Once Upon a Time in Mexico while shooting, while prepping, shooting, and cutting Spy Kids 3. And then just, just because of the way the release dates fell, Spy Kids 3 gets released first. And then Once Upon a Time in Mexico gets released like a few weeks after. I mean, they come out the same summer. So that's why this timeline's a little messed up. And I wanted to kind of give you that just to kind of give you some, just to give you kind of your, some bearings on this. But the beauty of doing this movie when he did the way he did he encapsulates really, really well in that interview, Robert Rodriguez, where he says, it was a 10-year an anniversary from when I did Mariachi. So I thought, you know, production designer, DP, I'm going to do all that stuff again. Because he could. Because he knew exactly what he was shooting when he shot it. He wasn't shooting blind like he was with film. He didn't need that excess crew. So he could just do that kind of stuff. Um, he could go back to shooting like the way he started almost. So in another interview in that same book called A Digital Desperado, he says this. He says, I shot Once Upon a Time in Mexico before Spy Kids 2 to learn what the strengths and limitations of digital HD were. I never could have made Mexico on film. It would have been too much work. The only reason I did it was because of the possibilities of digital HD. 
We shot it in the same amount of time that we shot Desperado, seven weeks, but Mexico is a much bigger movie. We saved so much time each day just because we knew what we were getting. That alone, to see what you're doing, just lets you move faster. Okay, this is the benefit of being technical and being right on the cutting edge of technology. Um, he says in his commentary track on the DVD or the Blu-ray that, no, it's not on the commentary. It's on one of the bonus features. Uh, it might be on the 10-minute film school called the 10-minute flick school. Um, anyway, it's on one of those bonus features. He says they were calling people if they had a question or a problem they couldn't quite figure out or something with the cameras. They were calling people about like, well, how would you do this? And nobody they called had any answers. Like nobody, nobody knew because nobody had hardly used these. The only people who'd used them were the people up at Skywalker who had, who had shot uh, parts of The Phantom Menace and I believe all of Attack of the Clones on these movies. They're the only people who knew anything. But they weren't, you know, they, it was still so experimental. And that's the advantage of being technical. You get to literally make shit up. I'm sorry. You get to make crap up because you're on the cutting edge, you know. And that was one of the things he said. He said, it was amazing because obviously there was no right way to do it. So we couldn't be wrong. No matter what we did, <laughs> we weren't wrong in what we were doing. So so there's all these advantages that they had. Like, for example, and we talk a little bit about this in in our last class session with Spy Kids 3D. But one of the one of the amazing things he was able to do was just let's the, let the cameras roll just all the time. You know, just let them roll for an hour straight. You know, didn't matter. Who cares? They were just, you know, just rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. And, and, and that helped kind of keep, keep the energy up and help keep so the actors in kind of their own, kind of in the right headspace. There wasn't this, this, this very f convoluted system that we have because we've needed it for so long of block, light, rehearse, shoot, you know, action. You know, you know, the first AD says, you know, roll sound, speed, roll camera, speed, director, Okay, and action, and then we go into the scene, and then the director yells, cut, and then they, and then everybody converses for a little bit, and then we go back and do the same thing. He could just roll. He could just, first AD, all right, roll it, speed, speed, action, and let the actor do their thing, and then he can come back and say, all right, good, that was good. Never, you know, never cutting, never, never stopping rolling, just... Yeah, that was good. And then while they're talking, the camera's still rolling. And then he goes back to the, and, and then when they're ready, he goes back to the camera and he just lets them settle in and lets them kind of just do things on their own, on their own pace, on their own time, because you're not burning the film. You know, you're, you're not wasting uh, a, a, a precious resource. You can just keep going. And it let actors, especially like Johnny Depp, who were so naturally gifted at improvisation to just go. You know, I, he, he let his actors sometimes improvise entire story elements. Um, he's making stuff up on the fly. And then if he didn't use it, he didn't use it. No big deal. It's not like he was burning film. But again, because he's on the cutting edge of technology, he's figuring out what are the limitations of this basically new medium. So the opening action sequence, um, it's, it's a lot like the one in Desperado, except instead of Steve Buscemi telling the story, it's, it's Cheech Marin. There's this big opening action sequence, and they shot that first because it was a flashback. And so if they found out that the HD cameras didn't quite work the way they wanted them to and they had to change course, 
it was a flashback. It didn't matter if it didn't match the rest of the movie. It's okay if it had a, had its own unique look and feel. So he shoots that first as like a test just to see what's what's going to happen. Sure enough, it works fine. And they just and they're just able to shoot the whole movie that way. But the other thing about digital and being technical, knowing the limitations of your camera, knowing the limitations of your glass, of your lenses, allows him so much more freedom than he had before with film. So like, for example, because the digital camera wasn't quite as light hungry, my, I, was, I, I was trying to look at the technical specs, but these cameras are so old, they're kind of hard to find. Um, my, my, my guess, the closest guess that I have is because these cameras are digital, they had a variable ISO or an EI or an ASA. You could change the sensitivity of the sensor. I'm assuming that's what it was. And because the sensor could be much more sensitive than your average film stock, because film stocks for a long, long time have really, movie film, film stocks have really only gone up to about 500 ISO or 500 EI or ASA or whatever you want to call it. And the, that sensitivity, because the more sensitive you make a film stock, the more grain you get. And the more, and, and the same thing happens with digital, where instead of getting grain, you get noise, which kind of looks like grain. So... My assumption is because it was a variable ISO, because you could change it and take it above 500, you could use slower lenses. You could use lenses that were stopped down more naturally. So I know we've talked about this, but I want to cover it again because, again, becoming technical is the biggest advantage you can ever have. So lenses have irises, just like your eyes do. They have a pupil that you can open up very wide to allow in a lot of light. And that affects based on how much light is in the room and the exposure and all those kinds of things. But you can also stop them way, way down. Like you can also close them up to where they're just a pinhole. So that if there's so much light that there's too much, you can you can change it down to that. They work just like the pupils in your eyes. When there's less light in the room, your pupils dilate. And when there's more light, like say you step outside, they close down. Same thing with a lens, okay? The problem is most zoom lenses don't open as wide. That iris doesn't open as much. It's limited in how much open it can be. But Rodriguez loves shooting zoom lenses. We've talked about this, how, how what he loves to do is let the actor just go and, shoot and, and go through their lines and then push in on certain lines with the zoom. He, so he can get a ton of coverage with only setting the camera up in one place. He doesn't have to move the camera, swap lenses, do any of that. And especially with digital, he's just letting it roll and just getting all kinds of coverage, you know, just all the time, just constantly, you know, and, or if he wants, he can do a slow zoom in, you know, that slow push in on a, you know, when the actor's in there. And so he doesn't have to, in the commentary, he talks about how, look, you always get one magic take. You always get one take from a, from an actor that's always perfect. And this way you get all the coverage you need out of that one take. And because the digital camera was more light sensitive, or it could be made to be more light sensitive, he could do those zooms, he could use those zoom lenses however he wanted, because he could get the exposure that he needed very easily without having to pump a ton of light into the scene. Um, one of the other advantages that the digital camera allowed him was being able to do slow-mo without having to open up the iris or the stop of his lens. Because again, you have that adjustable ISO. So you can leave the same stop, which affects your depth of field, that affects how much 
of the shot is in focus and how much is not. So without having to change the stop, because he can change the ISO, he can shoot slow-mo. Because the issue with slow-mo is there's more frames per second. So it's shooting more images every second, which means that there's less exposure to the light for each frame, which means that it's not as bright. But if you can up the sensitivity of the sensor, then it doesn't matter. You can leave all your settings the same except for that, switch over to slow-mo, you get you get the same image you would have had otherwise. And the other advantage of that was when you shot film, you couldn't watch slow-mo back. There was no playback possible on film for anything that was uh, overcranked. But with with the digital cameras, you watch slow-mo all the time. So they're doing all these stunts and all this big stuff, and they can immediately see what happens, immediately see what they got, and say, yes, we got it, move on. I don't have to do any more takes. Um, he tells a story about... Um, shooting uh, Spy Kids, about the first Spy Kids movie, where he had to do a Steadicam shot 17 times. He had to do the same shot, do 17 different takes, because the problem with the Steadicam monitors in the film days is they were terrible. You, you never could really see what you were doing. And there, was, there wasn't a good system for playback either that was effective and could really help you see everything. But he could operate his own Steadicam on this movie, and if he nailed it on the first take, he could watch playback. Oh, good, we nailed it. Moving on. So it, being technical puts you further can can put you further on the cutting edge of technology because you know when a new camera comes out that if it has this feature, oh, well, that would really help me, especially in this project that I'm doing because this, this, and this, and this. The more technical you are, the more dangerous you are as a filmmaker because you now have so much more control and it puts you it puts you in the driver's seat of how to tackle the problems that your story is going to provide you. Now, there's one other aspect to this being technical that I want to talk about. This is the, I believe this is the second movie Robert Rodriguez scored himself. I want to say he did Spy Kids first and then scored this movie because remember, he shot this right after Spy Kids. Now, he says... In another interview in the same book, Robert Rodriguez interviews, this, this interview is called I'm Able to Write the Score as I'm Shooting the Script. He says, I don't know theory that well, but I know my characters better than anyone. I was never trained as a writer, yet I'm writing scripts and writing characters. How do you write? One word at a time. The technical part of any of these is really 10% of the process. The rest is creative. If you're creative, you can figure out how to paint, how to write a book. You ask different artists of, from different media, and they, and they all tell you the same thing about the creative process. It's finding that creative instinct, that creative impulse. Then following it through becomes the chore of filling in the blanks. Robert Rodriguez is a fairly talented musician, granted. Music theory, he doesn't really know. Um, in fact, there's, there's a bonus feature on this disc where he talks about... Sorry, neighbors are going in and out. Uh, where he talks about um, he talks about scoring right there on his you know on his keyboard connected to his computer like we talked about with Spy Kids 3D, and like he doesn't he he doesn't know how to transpose what he's thinking to or transcribe what he's thinking not transpose transcribe what he's thinking into sheet music he has no clue but his software allows him to do that so he can he can mess around on the keyboard get something that he thinks sounds pretty good click a button and he has sheet music for it and he can give that to a musician if he wants for I don't know why but just cuz 
Robert Rodriguez isn't a, he's not a great technical musician, but he has enough technical skill, possibly some instinct, that he can go out and score his own movies. You know, for a long time, he considered himself not to be that great of an operator, a camera operator, not to be that great of a steady cam operator. Um, but he made himself learn. He made himself become technical. There are so many things that Robert Rodriguez does. He, that, that the only reason he can do them is because he took the time to learn the technical skills, being his own director of photography, being his own visual effects supervisor. Um, and because of that, it has freed up his creativity because he's not reliant on somebody else and not reliant on somebody else who has their way of doing it and their way of doing it won't work for what you want to do. I, we've, we've talked about this a, a bunch of times. There was on Spy Kids, the, the time he called the post house and they said, well, that's going to that's gonna have to be a motion control rig. He's like, no, it's not. Um, there was a thing in From Dusk Till Dawn that we didn't get to talk about. Uh, there was a, a post-production guy, his, his visual effects supervisor, who he almost fired because um, there's that shot in the opening title sequence where the car pulls into frame and and then the camera kind of drifts back to the trunk and we do the dissolve into the back seat, the Superman vision shot, or, or yeah, dissolve into the trunk to see the bank teller back there. The, the visual effects supervisor told him, well, it's going to take this, it's going to take this, it's going to take all this stuff, it's going to be very expensive. And he's like, no, it's not. I can do that in a computer today. Like, that's not hard at all. Being technical makes you not reliant on anybody and it frees you up to be that much more creative. I cannot stress this enough. One of the best things I've ever learned to do was be was working grip and lighting. Because now I understand how light works. I understand the technical side of light. And that only allows me to be more creative with it. So, uh, that's all we have for Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Um, next up, we have Kill Bill Volume 1 and Kill Bill Volume 2. Two episodes, like or two class sessions like we talked about before. And then we're going to cover Sin City, which is going to be a lot of fun. Please, uh, if you feel so inclined, check out um, my Robert Rodriguez method experiment on the Hitchcock University YouTube channel. You can subscribe to that, so you always get to see what I'm doing next. And then uh, we have, and then, and then of course, there's always news and updates on those kinds of things on um, on the Hitchcock University Facebook page, and uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Hitch underscore U as in University is our Twitter handle. And then, of course, you can always email us uh, at uh, Gmail. Our address is HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. Uh, If you like what you've heard, uh, please give us a like, a rating, a comment, a review, whatever you you got, Uh, and wherever it is that you can get it, whether that's SoundCloud, TuneIn, Radio, Stitcher, uh, Apple Podcasts, of course, Google Play, what have you. Um, Thank you all again for listening to Hitchcock University. My name is Taylor Bickle, and this has been Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Thank you so much.